Hello to any and everybody who have found themselves listening to this podcast. My name is Dustin Oliver. I'm your host. This is American Youth. Now, this is a special episode because I'm releasing this one on the first day of June, which is Pride Month. That's LGBTQIA Pride. And I've seen a lot of comments and I've seen a lot of people asking, why do we celebrate Pride Month? Why is it so important? And I have a couple of stories that I want to tell you here, which is some of the reasons why I think that it's so important that we do this. Now, we are still pushing for LGBTQIA rights all over the world, but right now I'm going to focus on a couple of stories that happen here at home in the U.S. So this first story is the story of Matthew Shepard. And if you haven't heard this story, it's it's a really, really important one. This one I'm getting is from wyohistory.org. And the author is Jason Marsden. This is a Wyoming history website. And I'm just going to read a couple of passages from this article. In the evening hours of October 6th, 1998, Matthew Shepard, a 21-year-old University of Wyoming student who was openly gay, went alone to the Fireside Lounge in Laramie after a meeting of the campus LGBT student group and a quick stop at the Village Inn. In less than two hours' time, he became a part of a chain of events that attracted international media and political attention spotlighted the ongoing public debate over hate crime legislation and became one of the most prominent cases in Wyoming judicial history. At the fireside, Shepard sat at the bar drinking from a bottle of imported beer. After somewhat more than an hour, he was approached by two men his own age, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson, high school dropouts with roofing jobs. They had purchased a pitcher of beer with small change and eventually engaged Shepard in a conversation. Shortly after midnight, Shepard left the bar with McKinney and Henderson. Police and prosecutors would assert that the two men lured Shepard, perhaps under the pretense of themselves being gay, but in fact with the intent of robbing him. In his police confession, McKinney repeatedly described Shepard as a queer, the gay, and fag. McKinney and Henderson drove Shepard to a remote area in the Sherman Hills development east of Laramie. By McKinney's own confession, corroborated in most details by Henderson, McKinney told Shepard that the two men were not gay and that he was going to be robbed. McKinney began punching and pistol-whipping Shepard before continuing the assault at a buck rail fence on Warren Livestock Company land. Investigators and an autopsy would later determine that Shepard was struck 19 to 21 times in the head with the butt of a 357 caliber Magnum Smith & Wesson pistol, the final blow irreparably damaging Shepard's brainstem. At McKinney's direction, Henderson bound Shepard's wrist with white clothesline from McKinney's truck and left him tied, unconscious, relieving him of his wallet identification and shoes. The two assailants returned to the Laramie at approximately 12.30 a.m. Only a few minutes later, back in Laramie, McKinney and Henderson became involved in an, alterca- in an altercation after two young men, whom police suspected of being engaged in vandalism, confronted them in a neighborhood McKinney and Henderson mistakenly believed was where Shepard lived. After the argument became a street fight, police responding to a vandalism call spotted fleeing individuals, one of whom was Henderson, and discovered Shepard's ID and credit card and the blood-molded pistol in the truck. Both McKinney and Henderson were treated separately at Ivinson Memorial Hospital over the ensuing hours for head injuries sustained in the street fight. During the coming day following their medical care, McKinney and Henderson would meet with their respective girlfriends, Kristen Price and Chastity Placely who would later be convicted for their roles that day in disposing of evidence and consorting alibis for the men in the Shepard case. Shepard, meanwhile, remained tied to the fence, most likely still unconscious, for approximately 18 hours until a passing mountain biker, Aaron Kreflis, 
fell from his bike. He noticed what he thought might be a scarecrow slumped along the fence line, but was in fact Shepard. Creepless ran to a nearby residence to call authorities. Chef's deputy, Reggie Flutie, and emergency medical technicians responded. Flutie later reported that Shepard, who was 5 feet 2 inches tall and boyish in appearance, looked at first to be a child and that the face was caked in blood except where his tears had left tracks along his cheeks. Attending physicians at Ivinson ascertained that Shepard's head injuries were grave and had him transported 65 miles to the Purdue Valley in Fort Collins, Colorado, where he determined that he needed to be admitted to the intensive care unit. The police investigation had continued, meanwhile, and McKinney, Henderson, Parsley, and Price were all ultimately arrested. Now, this is a story of a hate crime. This is a story of a young gay man who was murdered by two men, and this set off a chain of events in hate crime legislation. So this is one of the reasons we celebrate Pride Month. This next story highlights what happened at the Stonewall Riots in New York City. This is from History.com, the History Channel's website, and this is from History.com editors. In the early hours of June 28, 1969, New York City police raided the Stonewall Inn, a gay club located in Greenwich Village in New York City. The raid sparked a riot among bar patrons and neighborhood residents as police roughly hauled employees and patrons out of the bar, leading to six days of protests and violent clashes with law enforcement outside the bar on Christopher Street and neighboring streets and in nearby Christopher Park. The Stonewall Riots served as a catalyst for the gay rights movement in the United States and around the world. The 1960s and preceding decades were not welcoming times for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender Americans. For instance, solicitation of homosexual relations was illegal in New York City, and there was a criminal statute that allowed police to arrest people wearing less than three gender-appropriate articles of clothing. For such reasons, LGBT individuals flocked to gay bars and clubs, places of refuge where they could express themselves openly and socialize without worry. However, the New York State Liquor Authority penalized and shut down establishments that served alcohol to known or suspected LGBT individuals, arguing that the mere gathering of homosexuals was disorderly. Thanks to activists' efforts, these regulations were overturned in 1966, and LGBT patrons could now be served alcohol. But engaging in gay behavior in public, such as holding hands, kissing, or dancing with someone of the same sex, was still illegal. So police harassment of the gay bars continued, and many bars still operated without liquor licenses, in part because they were owned by the mafia. This is the Stonewall Inn. The crime syndicate saw profit in catering to shunned gay clientele. In the mid-1960s, the Genovese crime family controlled most Greenwich Village gay bars. In 1966, they purchased Stonewall Inn, a straight bar and restaurant, cheaply renovated it, and reopened it the next year as a gay bar. Stonewall Inn was registered as a type of private bottle bar, which did not require a liquor license because patrons were supposed to bring their own liquor. Club attendees had to sign their names in a book upon entry to maintain the club's false exclusivity. The Genovese family bribed New York City's 6th police precinct to ignore the activities occurring within the club. Without police interference, the crime family could cut costs on how they saw fit. The club lacked a fire exit, running water behind the bar to wash glasses, clean toilets that didn't routinely overflow, and palatable drinks that weren't watered down beyond recognition. What's more, the mafia reportedly blackmailed the club's wealthier patrons who wanted to keep their sexuality a secret. Nonetheless, Stonewall Inn quickly became an important Greenwich Village institution. It was large and relatively cheap to enter. It welcomed drag queens who received a bitter reception at other gay bars and clubs. 
It was a nightly home for many runways and homeless gay youths who panhandled or shoplifted to afford the entry fee. And it was one of the few, if not the only, gay bar left that allowed dancing. Raids were still a fact of life, but usually corrupt cops would tip off mafia-run bars before they occurred, allowing owners to stash the alcohol and hide the illegal activities. In fact, the NYPD had stormed Inwall in just a few days before the riot-inducing raid. This is the Stonewall Riots. When police raided Stonewall Inn on the morning of June 28th, it came as a surprise. The bar wasn't tipped off this time. Armed with a warrant, police officers entered the club, roughed up patrons, and finding bootlegged alcohol, arrested 13 people, including employees and people violating the state's gender-appropriate clothing statute. Fed up with the constant police harassment and social discrimination, angry patrons and neighborhood residents hung around outside of the bar rather than disperse, became becoming aggressively agitated as the events unfolded and people were aggressively manhandled. At one point, an officer hit a lesbian over the head as he forced her onto the paddy wagon. She shouted to onlooker on to onlookers to act, inciting the crowd to begin to throw pennies, bottles, cobblestones, and other objects at the police. Within minutes, a full-blown riot involving hundreds of people began. The police, a few prisoners, and a village voice rider barricaded themselves in the bar, which the mob attempted to set on fire after breaching the barricade repeatedly. The fire department and a riot squad were eventually able to douse the flames, rescue those inside Stonewall, and disperse the crowd. But the protests, sometimes involving thousands of people, continued in the area for five more days, flaring up at one point after the Village Voice published its account of the riots. Though the Stonewall uprising didn't start the gay rights movement, it was a galvanizing force for LGBT political activism, leading the numerous gay rights organizations, including the Gay Liberation Front, Human Rights Campaign, GLAAD, and PFLAG. In 2016, President Barack Obama designated the site of the riots, Stonewall Inn and Christopher Park and surrounding streets and sidewalks, a national monument in the recognition of the area's contribution to gay and human rights. And lastly, I just want to read off of a couple of names of unlawfully killed transgender individuals in the United States. This starts from the 1980s. 1988, Julia Doe. 1988, Venus Extravaganza. 1989, Carla Lee Salazar. 1991, Sonia Rescalvo Zafra. 1993, Brandon Tina. 1998, Rita Hester. 1999, Tracy Thompson. 2000, Christine Chappelle. Amanda Milan. 2001, Loni Kai. 2002, Gwen Araho. 2003, Nerea Johnson. Janice Roberts. Shelby Tracy Tom. 2004, Divas Bulanger. 2006, Gisberta Salas Jr., 2007, Roberto, 2008, Angie Zapata, Letitia Tish Green, 2010, Stacey Balnick, Sonia Burgess, Victoria Carmen Wright, 2011, Marsal Camaro Tai, Dee Dee Pearson, Shelley Treasure Hilliard. And the list goes on and on and on. 2012, 2013, 2014. It actually just gets longer as the years go 2015 the list is longer than 2014 2016 those are just some of the names of transgender people that were murdered because they were transgender now some of these things a lot of people might not understand it's different from them it's not used to what they're hearing it's not used to what they're seeing maybe they live in a society or a way of life where they just don't pay attention to it so they have no idea what's going on but there's a lot of things that are happening. If I were to continue with stories, I would be sitting here for five, six hours of stories of things that have happened, even just personal accounts of mine. But I can't do that. I don't have that much time. 
So what I am going to do is this Pride Month, every week, you're going to be given a story of experience, strength, and hope from a member of the LGBTQIA community about what happened to them, where they are now, and how they came to accepting themselves and who they are. I'm really excited about this series. I think it's going to be really interesting, and I think people are really, really going to resonate and like it, whether you're LGBTQIA or not. But without further ado, this Wednesday, we're beginning the series with our four stories. I hope you stay tuned and listen, and I hope you check us out on anything else. My name is Dustin Oliver, and this is American Youth.